Welcome, folks, to The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. Every week, diving deep into the truth of Catholic social teaching and restoring all things in Christ. The Uncommon Good is on the air. I'm Bo Bonner. I'm Bud Marr. We are coming to you live from these United States of America. I am over here in Des Moines, Iowa, in the Mercy One Studios. Uh, over here, what do I do, you ask? Well, I'll tell you. I'm the director of Mission and Ministry at Mercy College of Health Sciences and the director of the Zeta Institute for Foundation and Ethics and Leadership. So you can find both of those, mchs.edu and zetainstitute.com, and we'd be glad to have a conversation with you about those things. Bud, you are out in Pittsburgh joining us through the miracle of robot technology. <laughs> what do you do up there? I'm also directing. I'm not the kind of director that can deliver sweet blockbusters to your... <laughs> home theater, <laughs> but I am uh, uh, managing a journal and uh, inviting scholars to stay at the National Institute for Newman Studies, and uh, you can find out all about what we're doing at newmanstudies.org. I, this sounds personal, like <laughs> one time someone's like, oh, so you're a doctor, and you're like, yeah. like, can you help me with this? And you're like, no, 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 like... PhD doctor, and then, oh, you're a director? Well, I have this film. Oh, no, not that type of director. Is that just your life is explaining the the different, you know, sort of ways in which those words apply to people? <laughs> I, I feel like um, I feel like my career aspirations and, and actual work is mostly just false advertising. <laughs> <laughs> At least um, in my kids' evaluation of things. My, I, I mean, my dad's proud of me, but he does, you know, he did, he did some hard labor as a sheet metal worker, so he's like, you know, you can watch YouTube videos on the side while you're <laughs> directing. No, he's, yeah. No, yeah, it's it's it's, uh, it's May 1st, so it's uh, the Feast of St. Joseph, the worker, and I, too, have a dad who very much worked with his hands, and so yeah. um, when he knows that, like, oh, so, like, you just get to... You just get to drive over, and part of your work's be on a radio show. You can tell, like he's can't tell whether he's proud of that or disappointed. No, I'm kidding. I tell him I I tell him I yell at my students like a marine sergeant, and that makes him feel a little bit better. That's right. About the direction of my life. I'm like, yeah, Dad, I work with my hands, but like the hands of my my soul and my mind. And he's like, those aren't. That's not the same. <laughs> Sorry. Well, you know what? You know, someone who does work hard uh, is Cartridge World, and Cartridge World underwrites our show. If you need to, uh, I don't know, bud, like print out um, a description of how you have, a p- like what you mean by doctor or director, or you just need to like assure your family that you are um, actually earning your day's keep, you'll need a lot of ink for that. And where can you go? 801 73rd Street, Windsor Heights, Cartridge World. I feel like printing needs never end, you know. Um, <laughs> this we've moved, from, we've moved from bracket basketball season now to... Uh, I've got a lot of friends who their kids are doing like first communion and confirmation. Oh, that's so. true. Yep. And then uh, pe- people who actually do work very hard, work with their hands, and people that uh, I'm very proud to affiliate with is, of course, uh, our other underwriter, Mercy College of Health Sciences, where we get people who are the front line of uh, medical care for the communities they work in, and that's where they go train. Uh, so from nursing to allied health, um, the various ways in which uh, patients uh, feel the, the hand uh, of, of, of service that is the medical industry, um, that's what we're trying to empower them to do. In the spirit of uh, Sister Catherine McCauley, uh, we just got done with one semester gearing up for the summer one. Plenty of time to look into fall. mchs.edu. Thank you, Mercy College, for underwriting our show. Well, not to get too deep, too quick this morning, but well, I have a close friend who's um, battling cancer, um, or you know, he's been recently diagnosed, right. and uh, 
just listening to stories from their family about the kind of care that they receive at the hospital, uh, you know, it's just, it's so important to have medical professionals who they don't, don't only know the nuts and bolts of, of the medical field, but have like, it's coming from a compassionate place. And I know you guys at Mercy are all about that. Yeah. Knowing, uh, the ability to treat the whole person and talk about, um, caring and, and healing, just as much as trying to uh, get people's diagnosis. So it's, a, uh, like I said, a great honor to be associated with everybody who does that, mchs.edu. So, bud, um, I already said this, it's May 1st, and so through uh, plenty of years in the secular world, that's known as May Day and has um, a lot of uh, connotations and, uh, you know, lines drawn to it with uh, communism, socialism, the labor struggle in general, uh, a lot of this stemming from the later half of the Industrial Revolution. But um, since, I think, is it 1955? It's in the 50s. It might be 1952. Forgive me for, for blanking off the top of my head. Um, Pope Pius uh, Twelfth has instituted this as a second feast of St. Joseph's, uh, particularly St. Joseph the Worker, and very purposefully putting it on May 1st, we can talk about all those ramifications. So uh, you and I thought it'd be great to talk about not only um, St. Joseph as a worker, but a good occasion to talk about uh, the idea of authority. What does authority mean? What does it mean to respect authority? What sort of obligations do we have, uh, yeah. not to resist authority, but to bring up uh, difficulties that we have uh, with things happening in the news. And so I think it's a good occasion to, uh, you know, what is it? Ite, uh, Joseph, and I forget the third uh, Latin word. So I completely bombed on live radio. But the idea is go to Joseph, and there you'll find uh, not only uh, a sure protector in prayer, but plenty to talk about. Well, I've always been intrigued by St. Joseph. You know, my middle name uh, is, is Joseph, and he's the patron of the Universal Church, patron of fathers. It's it's fascinating to me that the Catholic Church, like one of the most important saints in the quote-unquote pantheon or whatever, is someone who we don't know a ton of details of his life, but, you know, just like the bare bones of what we have in Scripture has um, flowered into this whole devotional, I, I think rightly so, so we're, we're going to get into all that. Uh, yeah, I, I've, now I'm realizing that we named uh, Finian. He has the same middle name as you, but he's. do you have a, an F on the end or a PH? PH. Okay, so it's still a little different. We're we're oh. Joseph with an H, F, but um, I think both of you uh, perfect examples of people that uh, have Saint Joseph watching over them. So when we do that, we'll come back, like we said, talk about that. This is the uncommon good. Bo Bonner and Bud Mar stick around, and we'll be back right after these messages. <laughs> Back with the Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr joining you on this Wednesday morning. We hope everything's going well. May 1st, I know people out here in Des Moines Butt are making a big deal that, you know, April showers and then it's still raining uh, in May. So I, I think it might be a required joke. So I just wanted to make sure to make it. In Pittsburgh, uh, do you have the May flowers coming up yet? Oh, yeah, we're very green. A few weeks ago, it just blossomed. I, I don't know. My um, Madeline says that it rains here all the time. She sees Pittsburgh as kind of like the Seattle of the East. <laughs> um, it, it, it's, uh, we get more precipitation than Des Moines, although I think I read that last year was the wettest year on record, so I don't know if our early experience is indicative of oh, the whole. That that can make sense. Uh, yeah, we... Uh, 
what we've noticed this year is actually less of the rain is this is the windiest it's been since we've been in Iowa. We thought we left that in Kansas, so it's been sort of surprising. Um, so, so there you go. Maybe it's April showers bring the wind. <laughs> so um, but what May does bring, May 1st, yeah. is like we said before uh, the break, it's traditionally May Day. Um, it's funny that not, not the sort of distress signal, that's a whole other show, though, uh, but, uh, but, uh, May Day being the day that, uh, labor movement throughout Europe, especially, and for various reasons that, uh, that kind of would get us off track. So I don't want to go down that hole too much. Um, but it's considered the sort of day where labor celebrates uh, the labor movement and any of the accomplishments that labor has done. And depending on where you're at and, you know, what, party affiliation you have uh that takes on socialist overtones communist overtones in certain places as well so pope pius the 12th uh in the 50s decided uh to do a very catholic thing so instead of just constantly frowning about may 1st when it comes about um he decided to institute another feast of saint joseph saint joseph the worker and he put it on may 1st traditionally may day the day that europe especially and now the world celebrates uh, the achievements of the labor movement. But to me, this is a perfect... Troll's not the right word. That makes it sound like uh, he had sort of nefarious intent. Um, but just like the Christian churches in the early part of our existence would find, uh, I think, of St. Benedict, who found the, the two um, hedges up on Monte Cassino dedicated to pagan gods. He cut out the hedges, and then he made um, the, the uh, churches to St. Martin of Tours and St. Uh, John... That the this starts to be something we do. We want to go and say, well, this is something that the world does, that they have some part of it right, but we're going to purify it. So Pius the Twelfth says it's absolutely correct that there's things that labor unions, for instance, had gained for the benefit of workers that was good and actually supported by the church. And so instead of letting um, someone else take those goods and distort it in their own way, uh, we made this feast to celebrate St. Joseph once more, now not only as the sort of patriarch of the Holy Family, but the fact that he worked and that Jesus Christ himself submitted himself to a father uh, that was a worker and the dignity of work and everything that besides. So that's the sort of occasion for many things we thought that we could cull from today uh, to talk about on the show. Yeah, when you read um, when you read some of this, literature that's out there now where you have skeptics attacking Christianity, you sometimes hear this narrative that uh, one of the real drawbacks of the Christian faith is that it's focused on an, another world or another life, and therefore we somehow ignore the, the realities that are in front of us. You know, one thing when I first started moving towards the Catholic Church that I was struck by is that, uh, in the, you know, in Catholic history, one thing that we try to do on the show is not present everything as, you know, flowers and just it's just one right. straight line of justice or whatever. But I think it's fair to say, especially since the Industrial Revolution, that the popes especially have been deeply concerned about how laborers are, are treated. And so, yeah, it's a, it was a great institution of a great feast day, and I think um, we this has rightly been a central concern for Catholic leaders. And I think that in many ways it's the sort of crowning achievement of the social tradition of encyclicals. You know, you really hear um, the sort of canon of this starts with Leo the Thirteenth and Rerum Novarum, and then uh, each subsequent pope really adds into 
um, the rights of labor, the rights of workers, how it is that the modern world um, can benefit from understanding something like the medieval guild system or the understanding of uh, the dignity of the human person, the creative aspect and work and all these things. And so you start with Rerum Navarum and you really crown this achievement with the instituted um, high feast of St. Joseph the Worker on May 1st. And so this speaks to, uh, again, twofold, that the church sees uh, whatever is good and true in the world and dignifies it and, 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 and imbues it with a sort of grace that only um, God can through um, the sacred order. Um, but then also it's always a sort of check for us to, to realize um, that if we get too far away from what our very liturgical life teaches us, uh, that it's always going to end up to being something that trips us up morally. So the church wants us to, of course, raise Saint, our praises to St. Joseph because he himself is worthy of praise. He's an, a wonderful icon of the love of God. That's what the saints are, that really the saints are windows into the very heart of God. But also, we consider the life and the reality of what someone like St. Joseph um, is. And so then we have to ask ourselves, if St. Joseph uh, himself was found worthy in being just a, a, no, a, a normal workman, that Jesus Christ himself would be not the son of some king or a potentate, but the son of a worker, what does that mean for us on the ground? On one hand, it means that workers should take dignity in their work, um, that God himself decided that when he became incarnate, that he would put himself under the watchful authority and care of someone who earned their keep through work. Uh, but it also means that any of us who have any sort of... Uh, part to play in the power structures of this world, and presumably everybody in a democracy like the United States has a vote, so at least there's that, but many of us own businesses, many of us sit on boards, that we too must always keep the dignity of the worker front and center in our considerations of how things go, that profit does not overcome uh, the reality that work in itself, uh, well, let me back up, work, workers themselves have dignity um, doing the common work that they do, and we must always make policies that keep that in mind. Yeah, you know, John Paul II had some really fine things to say about all of this, and uh, Bo, even in, in our in our day and age, you're starting to hear the word socialism batted around in mainstream political discussions, and uh, Sometimes when you hear that, I think it's operating as a sort of caricature. But I do know when we hear those things, we can get the sense, like, we know the Church at different times has been critical of socialist structures, and we say, uh, well, that's, that's not the answer, and just completely reject the concerns out of hand. Right. I think we have to be a little more nuanced and careful in how we go about this. And what, what I have in mind specifically is John Paul II said that, you know, capital must always serve workers and not the reverse. Right. So when you talk about the questions of how do we think about conducting business and, you know, even what should be the concerns as we think about the direction of our, our companies, our organizations that we're a part of, for Catholics, the bottom line is not the bottom line. Now, we can't be impervious to those concerns. You know, I, I don't, we've kind of joked on the show before, you know, Mercy College probably doesn't want someone like me to run it because you do need to say, how do we how do we balance the books? How do we pay our bills? How do we yeah. pay what everyone is the a stewardship? A, yeah, that is a fair way. Yeah, but there are I mean there are ways. So for me, Bo, part of it that comes like part of where the rubber hits the road is there are still there are still unions out there, and I know people have different feelings about unions, especially maybe if family members were a part of one. 
But the actual the actual concerns that laborers have to say for for a kind of just treatment, I don't think we can dismiss those out of hand and say, well, that's just you know socialism or like a part of the democratic platform or something like that you know right especially since leo the 13th spoke uh, so directly about those the the rights for uh labor to organize in order to uh have a say in 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 this joint cooperation between the classes i mean that's something that leo the 13th was very specific about that society truly is a body and it's made of different organs and so if those organs are to work together um even though one might be the head and so to speak in the lead it would be ridiculous to act like we're going to um operate the body only for the sake of the head and not let the kidney or the lungs or, you know, whatever have its proper place and its proper say and its proper attention paid to it. Um, And that, that point that you said that capital is made for the sake of man and not man for the sake of capital, um, the economic world is that way too. It can certainly seem um, that are people who are sort of uh, stuck in the rat race um, or maybe wish they could even be in the rat race and they can't find jobs, uh, that the world is spinning for the sake of the economy trillions of trillions of dollars exchanged every day um uh, the the sort of uh, sheer amount of things that are done and money exchanged can make it sound like the entire world is ordered uh so that we're just cogs in the machine that make it run um the thing that we must always do as catholics is remember the dignity of saint joseph as a worker who the dignity is the fact that god gave us work Part of it is a punishment. We can talk about the difference between servile and non-servile labor and how that works in Genesis. But then also partly as a remedy that we work in order to uh, be humane, to be humans. And so that unless there's something that was done uh, wrongly, every person is given the right to sustain their life. And so that work itself because it comes from uh, the auspices of God as the best thing for man to do post uh, the fall. Um, we can't, uh, on purpose, either strip uh, the human being of the dignity of not being able to work, and, no, mm-hmm. and nor could we um, make it where all they do is work, uh, the proper ordering of all of this. And we're all reminded about this because of St. Joseph, not only that he's a good guy and he was a worker, but that God saw fit that Jesus Christ himself would be the foster child of such a worker. Well, and Bo, with what you're saying, uh, Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas both make the point that prudence is such an important virtue for living out the moral life, because we have to know uh, when to when to speak up and how to speak up. But also, you, you look at someone like St. Joseph, and you see that there's a real humility, I think, to how he lived out his life. So when when uh, our Lord's life was threatened because Herod was seeking to kill uh, infant boys throughout the land, mm-hmm. Joseph was protector in that instance and left a land that he, where he was comfortable and knew, you know, he had family and this whole network and everything uh, for the sake of preserving the life of his family. And and then after that, we don't we don't know a lot about how Joseph's life pay, played out. But we do know, as you said, that I think um, it's it's fair to assume, and this is really what the Church celebrates, that part of the dignity of Joseph's life and the beauty of his witness is this qu- kind of quiet provision for his family uh, in very difficult circumstances. And I think as as fathers, we can take a lot away from that. You know, I'm kind of opening up a can of worms, but there's this kind of idea, I think, sometimes about the faith that it's it's primarily driven by activism, mm-hmm. and I think an activism that's not grounded in 
contemplation and also that's not it doesn't have a proper prioritization you know for someone like myself if i spent 90% of my time you know even something like praying in front of planned parenthood or or working at a soup kitchen or something i'd really be neglecting my family and i think st joseph calls some of us back to there's there's a season for these different forms of witness Right. I I also think that um, you go, oh, well, the best father that, you know, other than God the Father that we know, um, the best thing said about him is that not much is said about him. And I go, oh, man, if my kids ever made biographies, I'm a little worried how much ink would be spilled about, you know, their dad. Whereas, like, maybe the, the best dads only have a few pages. That might be something to consider. Um, but I think that gets into a real mystery, bud, that we can maybe turn the conversation to for the rest of the time is, um, authority itself, Jesus Christ, you know, God, the son of God, right, decided to submit himself to an earthly authority and an earthly authority that, like we said, wasn't, um, you know, the emperor or someone who, you know, uh, everybody would have known, um, but the simple dignity of the authority of a father, who earned his keep uh, through carpentry. And so that starts to be an interesting thing too. You were bringing this up, right? That So there's the activism, which maybe says like, I'm only doing things if I'm like really, really active. And like, like you said, like constantly on the go, constantly doing something else, um, which a lot of actual monks point out as uh, sloth. We, we think sloth is being lazy, but sloth is being, so to speak, lax uh, in trying mm. to rest in God and peace. And that sometimes we fill that with activity. Um, there's also a way in which maybe it's just, you know, we're Americans, or maybe this is just we're all fallen creatures that uh, are like Adam. Um, but the sort of activism that says, like, if there's an authority figure and they're not uh, 100% what I think they should be, uh, that I better go uh, give them my fill. Um, but, you know, we get one of the fun things about being Catholic is having everybody complain about you, like, by polar opposite sides. So on one hand, uh, Catholics are unruly. They don't, like, listen. They supposedly have fealty to the Pope or the bishops, but all they do is complain. And then on the other side, what you hear is, oh, Catholics are just pray, uh, pay, and obey. They, they are, they're yeah. meek lambs. They don't do anything about these things. Now, lucky for us, that's because people unwillingly, uh, I'm sure they don't mean to do this when they're bashing us, are just proving our point about virtue, right? That virtue is a mean between two extremes and that we can be deficient or excessive about um, authority, and certainly people do that. Uh, but I think it's fair to say on this May 1st, imagining uh, you know, like that even Jesus Christ himself submitted himself to an earthly authority, uh, that all you got to do is look at Facebook or uh, Twitter, bud, and, and see that maybe some people need to consider about what it means to submit ourselves to authorities, <laughs> especially in the church. Yeah, that's right. I Well, I mean, connecting it back to what we've already said about um, our Lord and the Holy Family, uh, John Henry Newman, who I write on, he has a great sermon called The Mystery of Divine Condescension, and he the, the spark plug for the sermon is the Incarnation, and just trying to wrap your mind around the mystery that the eternal word became flesh. But then Newman goes on to say that, you know, there were all sorts of ways that the Son of God condescended mm-hmm. or made himself lower, and part of it was by submitting to an earthly mother and father. And this, you know, Bo, this is, this is a topic that I, I've puzzled over a lot. But you've brought up the question of, you know, authorities who don't fit precisely our vision of how they should be, or even in some cases unjust authorities. And in, in Scripture and in the lives of the saints, you see 
a real, for lack of a better term, like a real creative way that they go about. Uh, there's never, as far as I can tell, there's very little sort of like attempt to undermine authority figures. But there are there are ways that saints and even Christ had to, their lives were impacted by, you know, I, we just got through Holy Week. Right. And I, I'm sure, you know, like for, for Christ, Pontius Pilate, he could see through, right through Pontius Pilate's shallow approach to truth. And of course, Pilate had no right to sentence Christ to death, but the, the, the immediate response was not a revolution, although by walking the path that he did, Christ did disarm the principalities and powers. So it's really, there's a lot, there's a lot of grist for the mill there. Yeah, I think uh, when we come back, we're getting ready to come up to the break, but that's precisely the point. It's one thing to say we believe in authority in the Catholic Church, and it's absolutely true, and we believe in submitting ourselves to those. Um, it's also true by the very nature of the story of Passion Week that there are competing authorities, there's competing senses of authorities, uh, but even within that, right, so like you said, it's not ever dualistic, it's never the case of like, well, there's this one authority, all others are trash, and then we're going to subvert them, and very clearly, if you look in uh, the story of Jesus Christ, but also the entire story of the church, uh, there's a way in which uh, the already and not yet of what we're living, the time in between uh, the here and now and the great consummation of things at the end of time, where there are authorities that have authority, and God clearly gave them authority. Jesus Christ himself says to Pilate, you wouldn't have this ability to do this to me unless you were granted that authority. Yeah. However, obviously, um, there's a moral failure of authority. Pilate is not someone you want giving keynote speakers at the men's conference about how you should act, for instance. Um, and then that's certainly the case uh, within the church now, within uh, politics. So people know that they want leadership and authority, but they feel that there's a lack of it. And maybe uh, what we can say is, without like throwing blame or pointing fingers, that when there starts to be this lack of authority, people wildly rebel against all authorities, authorities they shouldn't, they don't make distinctions. And so I think that what might be very helpful when we get back to the break is let's very much discuss what authority means. What does the word even mean? How does that play out in the church? How do we show authority to people without being doormats? Um, and I, I think it's the great sort of um, paradox, uh, but unity of the church to say that both of those things pertain. So when we get back uh, on The Uncommon Good, talk with Bud on this uh, uh, St. Joseph the Worker Day, May 1st, We'll really uh, get into that, the fact that Jesus Christ himself submitted himself to multiple authorities, St. Joseph, uh, a good authority, uh, morally, uh, Pontius Pilate, someone who had a lot more political authority but had no moral authority, and how that plays out in our understanding of who we deal with uh, today as Catholics. So this is The Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. Stick around when we get back uh, after this break. We'll talk about everything we just discussed. <laughs> Back with the Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr coming to you today, Wednesday, May 1st, celebration of St. Joseph uh, the Worker, a wonderful feast, and we've been talking about that, not only its implications for understanding uh, the dignity of work, the dignity of workers, but also talking about authority. So, Bud, we left off pointing out that uh, we have the mystery of Christ submitting himself to earthly authorities, uh, good ones like his uh, foster father Joseph, um, bad ones 
like uh, Pontius Pilate, in whom he points out that only has the authority because uh, the Father in Heaven wants him to do. So then we have the question of why is it now in our sort of uh, contemporary, and very contemporary, this seems to have amped up lately, that people have such distrust in authorities and what sort of spills out in all sorts of different ways within the church. Um, I don't think it's hard to see that if you go on Facebook or hear the news, uh, that there are people who, uh, all the way up to not only bishops and priests, but the Pope, um, accusing him of, of various things and, and challenging his authority. And so, but I think it's fair to ask, what is authority and how do we understand it and how are we to react to it here in the church? Well, again, to bring up Newman, he was someone who struggled sometimes with relationships with bishops, even after becoming Catholic. There were things that he wrote or said that ruffled some feathers, and so he had to, he had to deal with these things in a concrete manner. But he kept going back to this Latin maxim that the, the abuse of an office does not undermine its use. So even if you're of the impression that this specific bishop or whoever is in my life is is abusing their office or not, you know, not operating at full tilt, that doesn't mean the office itself can be thrown out. And I know what I'm saying might sound like Catholicism 101, but I do think, Bo, in our day and age, you know, as Catholics, we believe that the truth that was given by Christ, there's this, there's this intrinsic connection between the truth given and how it's, how it's passed down. So we can't just... We don't have the option of creating something different, right? Right. Well, and you I know, think... Um, yeah, go ahead. I'm just saying, even be, you, you, before Catholicism 101, whatever the remedial class is, 005, whatever, <laughs> let's talk about what do we even mean by the word authority? Um, we obviously get the implication of oh, someone who can tell someone what to do. We hear authoritarian, and we think of it necessarily as a sort of derogatory term, someone just by their force of will. Um, but the word itself, of course, has its own history. And yep. it's sort of funny that authority is related to the same word as an author. So I don't think we necessarily think that someone writing a book is authoritarian, even though that's literally how that would work out etymologically wise. Well, the reason being is someone who has authority has the right to write, sorry to use like write in two different sense, has the <laughs> right to author laws. And then they have the, the right to author those laws and then have it assumed that people would follow them. So someone who has no authority, um, has no capacity to write a law, um, and someone has a illeg illegitimate authority, has no right for whatever law they would make to be followed. Um, now, of course, that doesn't mean that you have to make laws or pass them by Congress. It doesn't need to be put on a paper. Uh, when we say that a parent has authority over their child, that doesn't mean that a carte blanche, like, do whatever you want, um, I can impose my will, it means that a parent, um, by natural right, has the ability to author rules if laws make you feel queasy, and that it's completely legitimate that a child be expected um, to follow those rules. Now, here's where we get to you know, the different part. Up to the point where some other authority would be counter counterposed by following that rule. So, for instance, you should do what your parents say as long as it doesn't break the rules of natural law or go against what God commanded, right? So the the world is a sort of stratification of laws, uh, of authorities, right? People who have the right uh, to author commands and expect them to be followed. Um, but the boundaries of all those are encompassed by the fact that God himself is the ultimate authority. 
um, can be expect. It's expected, of course, that we follow any rule that he authors because we know it will be good, uh, and that the ability to author commands by any other authority are given by him because if he didn't want someone to have them, he could take them away. Yeah, and when you hear all these things, some might think that we're counseling a kind of passivity or pacifism, and nothing could be further from the case. You know, we recently celebrated the Feast of St. Catherine of Siena, so there are saints who we celebrate who at different times, you know, Bo, you're probably better on this history than I am, but Catherine of Siena at one point went to Avignon and told a pope, I believe it was Gregory the Eleventh, that he belonged in Rome. Right. And so this, uh, at a time period where uh, women had, you know, a different role in society, she was willing to boldly confront a pope who she thought was not living up to his office. But how we how we go about this, or how we think about now is the time to resist in some way. I think even the resistance looks different when it's in the key when it's in a Christo Christo-formed key. So you think about someone like St. Thomas More, and he believed, rightly so, that the king of England had been given authority by God, and he said, I'm willing to sign an oath of allegiance to um, the supreme of the land insofar as it accords with God's law. When the king went a direction where what he was doing was a, a violation of natural law, Thomas More wouldn't recognize this false marriage that he tried to set up. But he didn't say the answer was to assassinate the king or set up his own monarchy. Right. It looked different. Yeah, and I mean, so even Catherine of Siena, um, it wasn't a matter of she's like, you know what, if I'm really thinking about it, in my opinion, the Rome, the Pope really needs to go back to Rome. Um, Catherine of Siena, mystic, who had all sorts of other crazy stuff happening in her life, right, yeah. mystically told by God, go tell the Pope. And when she even was like, who am I to do this? The answer sort of was like, well, you're not anyone, but I'm God. He has to listen because I have the authority to supervene even his prudential decisions. So then she goes and does this, like you said. And then with Thomas More, it starts to be the same thing. It's not a mere opinion that got his head cut off. Um, the the movie uh, is not completely historically accurate. It's a fantastic yeah. movie. I don't want to like bash it at all. Um, but But we do know that... Um, it's not that he struggled with what he should do. He definitely struggled with how how this non-compliance with the unjust rule of the king, he struggled about what the best way to do this was. Um, but like you said, it's because God's law supervenes that authority. Just again, to like really wrap this up for people, there's maybe two things that to, to be technical. I don't always read things on the show, but Pope, I, I got two quotes that I think help this out. So, uh, Poem St. John the Twenty-Third said, Since God made men social by nature, and since no society can hold together unless some one be overall, directing all to strive earnestly for the common good, every civilized community must have a ruling authority, and this authority, no less than society itself, has its source in nature, and has consequently God for its author. Political legitimacy, therefore, must be derived from God. So, on one hand, all authority derives from God because God has naturally put us in community together and then made it where there's an authority within that community so the community holds together for the common good. But then this like sort of, uh, to, to get at this other point, to the extent, this is someone uh, uh, commenting on this, to the extent that a government is illegitimate, 
Its decrees and legislations have no authority. The reason for this is that all authorities derive from God. So authority, therefore, is only possessed when one adheres to the eternal law as expressed by the natural law. Violation of the natural law, therefore, shows that one has forsaken one source of authority and that consequently one has no authority at all. The person then begins to like talk about the distinction, right? That there's two ways that we understand someone having an authority. Someone has the authority of an office, which is not something they personally have. It's what they have in light of, of being in that office. And then there's moral authority, which does belong to a person's moral standing. So that's why it's completely possible that Pontius Pilate, who has the authority of being, um, you know, uh, his position in the Roman governance also can have little to no moral authority because of his cowardice or his lack of staying um, on the true road. When we look at that, not only in political situations, but also the church, I think that's something people quickly forget. Um, You know, we've had three very different popes uh, the the last time, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and Pope Francis, uh, who currently reigns. We have people who have widely varying opinions about all of them. And I always try to point out, it's not your job to like any pope or any bishop or any priest. You were not put, part of your religious obedience is not to like anyone. Um, and it can be the case, I don't think this is the case, but like we can look back. There are very obvious examples in history where there was a pope who had no moral authority there were Borgia popes that you should not listen to a word they said personally based on the way that they lived their lives. But they were all invested with not political authority, but ecclesiastical authority, the authority of the office granted uh, by Jesus Christ to the successors of Peter. And that that's something we must always obtain uh, and, and always uh, keep going. So what makes us decide to be Catherines of Siena, right, is at the same time that we must always say, this person is in authority. They have the right uh, to speak commands that we follow insofar as they do so uh, through the dignity of their office, that there are people who make mistakes morally that have those uh, offices, and that that's where we begin to say that we're not rebelling against an, ov- uh, an office, um, but uh, p- pointing out to people who are all just humans um, a moral failing that maybe we, and it, I don't think everyone has this right un, unlimitedly, but that God has throughout time made it people's job to confront even not only bishops, but a pope, um, or e- even and more to home for all of us, a father, a mother, in their role in their office and say, look, you're letting the failure of your moral authority affect uh, the authority of your office. That has to be the case, or otherwise, Holy Week doesn't make sense if you see what I'm saying. I like the fact that you brought up St. Catherine's mysticism and her asceticism, the kind of uh, fasting and different spiritual practices she put herself through, because I think whenever we even feel compelled to critique, we have to say, what is the shape of my life taking on? Right. Um, In our day and age, there are forms of media that make it easy to sound off, and sometimes when I hear these things, I think... In what way has your bishop or the pope called you to violate your conscience in any way? Right. And then the rebuttal that I imagine in my mind, because, Bo, I win a lot of arguments in the shower, <laughs> imaginary <laughs> arguments, is, well, I have to speak up because this person is making people think things that are erroneous about the faith. Now, I, 
I'll say up front, I do think there are times where you could write an article or something, mm-hmm. and it would be legit. So, for instance, I think Cardinal World dropped the ball and how he handled certain cases in Pittsburgh, you know, priests who had acted immorally. Right. And I'm, I'm, I would be fine to hammer out something like that. But when... I won't, I won't name, name, name names, but to put flesh on these bones, when a lot of your time and energy is spent with so I see this phrase sometimes in articles or on social media, like people talk about new church in quotation marks, almost as if there's there's this body, and let's be honest, they're speaking about the bishops who have created something different, which isn't what we practice. I have to ask, have you gotten to a place where you're really, I don't want to sound too judgmental, you're, you're really following Jesus, or it's become something something different? I just don't know if that's kind of a constructive way to go about what might be legitimate concerns. Yeah, I think one thing people do sometimes, and I I don't know if it's, it doesn't have to be malicious, it doesn't have to be even intentional, but there's a way if you look at a sector of the church that's doing something wrong, and I think all of us have plenty of things to choose from right now uh, with everything we all know in the news. Um, when you start saying like, oh, well, this is like the new church, or like, oh, that's like the this party of the church, or that party of the yeah. church, this is the church in this part of the, the region, and not that, um, it's a sort of pride getting to us, because we want to act like, well, I really only belong to the best part of the churches, and these people are sort of ruining it for me, instead of acting like, no, actually, the whole church um, are sinners. Now, again, you can go the complete opposite way and go like, well, we're all sinners, so may yeah. as well not stand up and and have convictions for things you're like no it has to be both right on one hand we can't act like there's a real true church and then there's the bad parts no we are admixed right we are the wheat in the tares at this part of the world until the end of time but on the other hand that does not spur us to quietism uh and i think you really make the the point well we all have different roles in the body of christ and so um Who's, whose job is it to correct whom? I mean, it, it, it's one of those deals where I don't think we should need a flow chart, but sometimes how people are starting to act, maybe we need to make a flow chart. Like, you know, you only create policies when people so radically abuse what should be something that makes more sense. Um, but I do think it's the case that we are definitively not saying that you should be quietist. No ruler should expect to not... And I'm not even rulers, authorities. No authorities should expect or want a situation where they never hear from the people under their authority. That's that. How, how can you speak rules and laws into existence that are good to follow and moral if you don't hear back from those for which you have authority over? However, that's a lot different than saying that every announcement of an authority should be expected to be followed by absolute bedlam and anarchy and that we're just going to see which rules happen to stick after uh, the crazy uh, you know infighting that occurs i think that like you said but that's a good way to ask is are we really being impinged in our conscience by this or that action or statement from any authority and then when we do that it starts becoming something like uh, what Christ talks about in Matthew. Like, are we willing to go talk to that person uh, one-on-one? Are we willing to go find people that they respect and try to, you know, like there's an order to trying yeah. to ask the authorities to do these things. And um, we go back again just once more to Catherine of Siena. Um, 
she didn't have Facebook and Twitter to go complain on. <laughs> um, yeah. But it would seem that like she wouldn't have chose to do that anyway. Certainly, the 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 modes of um, gossip and uh, backbiting that were available at her time, she did not avail herself to. She very, like you said, crazily walked up to the Pope and figured out how to have an audience with him and said, this is directly from God. Are we willing to do that? That's also another thing I was going to say is think about the potential cost if what Catherine did didn't go how she planned it to. Think about like what would have happened yeah. to her. And I think that starts to happen too when people go, why is there so much belly aching against authorities in the modern world? Well, I think we can do it with such little cost, bud, and that's why um, we have less respect for the authority of the offices um, than we do, and then actually not enough concern with the moral, the moral authority that people have. And that's probably the toughest part. If you're going to do this effectively, and I'm not talking about necessarily achieving practical outcomes, but if you're going to truly witness to the truth, you'll have to die to self. Mm-hmm. And there will be serious costs involved. So you think about St. Thomas More, someone who, who gave his life for what he believed to be true. Uh, I think what he did there was more enduring and said more about where true authority lied than if he had tried to buck authority. Right. Or to, to appeal to an example that's maybe more immediate to a lot of our listeners, both, both Catholic and non-Catholic, when leaders in the civil rights movement said, I'm willing to go to prison and to patiently uh, endure unjust penalties, through that witness, they showed, I think, what, what the truth of the matter was. And that's, I, I think, Bo, a couple weeks ago on the show, we were talking about this verse, like, unless a grain of wheat dies and falls to the ground. Mm-hmm. I, I do think there's something to be said, of course, for not, not like a pragmatism with these things, but looking at preeminently the example of Christ, but then all these servant leaders down through history, that their, what they witnessed to was lasting precisely because they were patient in the face of injustice. Right, and I mean, we're, we're getting running out of time, so this is a whole can of worms, but I think it has to be yeah. said. Clearly in the tr- tradition, in just war, St. Thomas Aquinas, even in these popes that I was quoting, um, there is the idea that like if 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 a tyrant takes over a civilization or a society, that there's even a duty to take out tyrants so that the weak and uh, and just the normal people can in law can function right. Um, there's no sort of bellwether test for tyranny. Um, I do think sometimes when people think they're uh, under a tyrant and they're freely talking about it on Facebook every day for you know two and a half years that. They're probably not under a tyranny. Um, but it is absolutely the case that tyrants can and should be resisted. And that's so it's not to say that no matter what, we must always be doormats to the current authority, even if they're tyrannical. It is to say, though, like you said, about the cost. Uh, the cost and that the Christian way is to be the seed that dies so that new wheat can sprout. Um, but indeed, other authorities, especially people from other lands, for instance, have the authority to protect the innocent. And that's where, in fact, just war came from in the Middle Ages is the idea about how does a Christian king um, uh, defeat tyrants that make something like uh, the, the ability to worship uh, uh, impossible or something like this. So that's a, a last side note. And unfortunately, we've run out of time with that. Um, but 
fantastic conversation. Something else. Uh, St. Joseph's always uh, good at spurring on conversation. I feel we could talk for another hour and a half. So this is the Uncommon Good for Bud Marr. This is Bo Marr. Uh, not Bo Marr. Bo Bonner. Excuse me. Uh, may Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, reign in our hearts, in our families, in our city, our state, the world, solar system, galaxy, the whole kit and caboodle. This is the Uncommon Good. We'll be back next week. <laughs> The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr is heard every week on wonderful Catholic stations like this one and anytime on podcasts. Just search for The Uncommon Good.